0: Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you guys about betonline.ag. Football is back in full swing. We're headed into week two, and Bet Online Sportsbook has all the odds, props, promos, and parlays that you need during this September. Use our promo code BLEAV, B-L-E-A-V with the link in the description to this episode, and you can get a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Bet Online, where the game starts. <laughs> Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, or good night. However, and whatever it is you may be listening, thank you for stopping into another fantabulous episode. Of the Take It Easy podcast. Alive on the Believe Podcast Network. Except it isn't live because it is, as always, a podcast. And podcasts aren't live. It's the whole purpose of these podcast things. You can listen however and whenever it is that you so choose. And we appreciate that you have decided to stop in however and whenever it is that you may Be listening. Welcome, welcome, welcome. It's a Fantabulous Wednesday, September 13th, according to my count. It may not be that according to your count. It's a podcast. It could be a Thursday, Friday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. However, whenever you may be listening, we appreciate that you are stopping in. We have got a Fantabulous freaking episode coming at you today. Fan flipping tabulous on this fine Wednesday Juju Talk Sports and I are back together, putting together some fun topics of conversation on a sports radio Wednesday. The Detroit Lions were a team that we didn't really talk much about on our NFL Monday, part because the game was on Thursday, in part because the Detroit Lions beat Patrick Mahomes, in part because Kadarius Toney and Sky Moore were incredibly frustrating in a game where Kansas City receivers dropped six passes, which, if you're keeping track at home, Larry Fitzgerald had six total dropped passes within a five-year span of his NFL career. Kansas City receivers as a whole dropped six passes. Kadarius Toney dropped four passes and finished with one catch. All of that being frustrating on the Kansas City side meant that Detroit and Kansas City got kicked to the back burner a little bit. Well, lucky for us, Juju Talk Sports and I broke down the Detroit Lions last week, and I wanted to share that with you guys here on the show today. Also, we're going to talk about Ben Simmons, a topic that you guys have heard me talk about time and time again. I'm infinitely fascinated by Ben Simmons. I would love to be Ben Simmons' friend, have deep empathy for the Ben Simmons person and character within this weird NBA space over the last four years or so. Ben Simmons is infinitely fascinating to me, and we continue that conversation with Juju Talk Sports today. And then we're going to talk about ACC realignment with Cal and Stanford coming in and, and SMU joining and the financials behind that move and why the ACC schools are trying to get out of the way, as are trying to get out of the conference as quickly as they can. In order to, but they can't because of their television contract. We're going to break that down on the show today. I mentioned yesterday that we were going to put together a Mel Tucker podcast uh, because that was a story that, in the middle of the football Sunday, became national news. As Mel Tucker, for those who, who aren't aware, had a Title IX investigation brought upon him by a woman, Brenda Brenda Tracy, who is a advocate for sexual assault survivors and someone who does speaking engagements around the country talking about setting expectations for romantic encounters, uh, talking to predominantly football players. She was a woman who had an experience of being raped at Oregon State back in the 1990s, and Mel Tucker had a sexual harassment complaint filed against him. There's some details within a story by USA Today and followed up on by ESPN that went public and led to Tucker being suspended without pay. Ultimately, he's going to get fired. Michigan State is trying to figure out whether or not they have to pay his $70 million buyout or whether they can fire him with cause based on the results of the Title IX investigation. Wanted to do a long-form topic on that. Don't quite have the research, and it feels like there's going to be new developments within the week that will affect the research. So even though it won't be the most timely of podcasts, we're gonna wait a week to do the Mel Tucker episode, and uh, the long-form researched podcast will come sometime next week, I would presume. Just wanted to acknowledge that since we're gonna be doing a silly college football realignment topic here today on the show that uh, the mel tucker episode is probably going to be sometime next week so without further ado here is juju talk sports and myself breaking down the detroit lions ben simmons and college football realignment remember if you want to watch any of these episodes check out the youtube page it's linked in the description of this episode you can see our beautiful faces talking about these very fun topics and many more We
1: are just days away from kickoff to the 2023 NFL season, and it's going to feature a matchup of the defending Super Bowl champion, Kansas City Chiefs, versus the upstart Detroit Lions. And this year's Lion team has a different energy around it, uh, and certainly in my lifetime. So for context, I was born in 1994. The last time the Detroit Lions won the division was 1993. 1993. Brad Holmes, the GM of the Detroit Lions, had a comment in a recent interview where he said his confidence is very high that the Lions will win the NFC North. In fact, his full quote was, we've gone through a lot of darkness to get to this point. And anyone that's watched the Detroit Lions know he's not exaggerating. It has been a lot of dark times in Detroit. I don't believe they had a playoff win at all in that time either because Matthew Stafford didn't have a win as a Detroit Lions quarterback in Detroit. He was obviously the starting quarterback for the majority of my lifetime watching this team play. We look at the NFC North. Aaron Rodgers is gone. The Packers might take a step back. Justin Fields still an enigma. We know he's very talented, but he hasn't shown it entirely in the NFL quite yet. Um, and then the Vikings won a lot of coin toss games last year, but then there are the Lions had the worst defense in the league for the first half of the season and then just start going on a little bit of a run. And if it wasn't for a a few things towards the end of the season, maybe they could have made the playoffs last year. Long-winded intro here, but Kyle, when you look at the Lions, should Brad Holmes be this confident in this team coming into the season?
0: Short answer, I have no idea. No idea. Long answer, if I told you that every team in the NFC North If I told you the Vikings, the Packers, the Lions, or the Bears were to finish this season eight and eight, you would believe me. You'd be like, I could see that. I could see the Vikings going eight and eight. I could see the Packers going eight and eight. I could see the Lions going eight and eight. I could see the Bears going eight and eight. Uh, people will tell me right now, but Kyle, they play 17 games in the NFL season. Yes, I'm saying 8, 8, and 1, all of them. The Packers will tie the Lions, the Bears will tie the Vikings. All of them go 8, 8, and 1 in this season. They will all finish with identical records. It's all possible at this point because if you were to rank every NFL team right now from 1 to 32 on their preseason odds, I would say the Vikings are probably like 11 or 12. The Lions are probably 12 or 13. The Packers are probably like 15, 16. And the Bears are probably like 17, 18, 19 or something like that. That would be my assumption. All of them are very close to each other and all of them play each other a lot, which is going to be really interesting because each team plays six games against their divisional opponent. We all know that. Those games are going to matter a lot because the margins are going to be so thin in that whole division. And so if a team is going to emerge as a 10-11 win team out of that division, maybe get the three seed or maybe be spicy and get the two seed in the in the NFC, I think it's probably going to be, if I had to pick one team, most likely, I think it's going to be the Vikings. But if I had to pick a second version, I think it would be the, the Detroit Lions, uh, because I think that Detroit has more talent on that team compared to the Bears and Packers.
1: And they're a more talented roster because of many of those years of darkness that Holmes speaks of. Uh, obviously, they've been very high in the draft for many years, and that's allowed them to get players like a uh Aiden Hutchinson, and that's put them in the position that they are now. Now, when you look around the landscape of the NFC North, Uh, Where are the Lions advantages? Okay, so when we talk about like coaches in the NFC North, we're going to figure out how good the floor really is with Aaron Rodgers no longer there. We saw what happened with uh, Kevin O'Connell last year. He seemed to turn around like a stagnant Minnesota Vikings team, Uh, certainly revitalized their offense, but we'll see how that translates into year two. Again, I mentioned they had a lot of coin toss victories and uh Eberflus, no one really knows how good he is. He hasn't, he hasn't won in this league yet. So when we look at the second most important aspect of this, the quarterback position, I, I think at this time, and I know we might disagree a little bit here, I still think that Kirk Cousins is the best quarterback in the NFC North right now at this moment. Now, if Justin Fields does take another step in his development, sure, he could potentially surpass Kirk Cousins this year. Uh Goff at the moment, I think still might be two or tied for two when it comes to uh, Justin Fields. I, I think the worst at this moment is clearly Jordan Love, just because we just really haven't seen it. And even the games we have seen, it's not all that impressive. Jared Goff, you know, he is a guy that at the end of the day has been to a Super Bowl. Uh, you you can obviously credit a lot of that to Sean McVay going to Los Angeles. But when he has time, when he has time to function in that pocket and he does have one of the better offensive lines in the league, he is a dangerous quarterback. He can make the right decisions, the right reads um, when he protects the ball and is not turning the ball over a lot, which I think was a frustration in year one uh, between him and Dan Campbell. But I feel like they corrected that a lot. I I like their backfield. David Montgomery has been quietly one of the better running backs or more, more steady running backs in the league for a while. Jameer Gibbs, I, I was surprised they went running back in the first round. But if he is as talented as people think that he can be, then he's going to add every bit of that offensive punch. And certainly that offensive line is going to prop him up. Now, a, a big a, the big question for me is going to be their defense, because as I mentioned last year, when they started off, they were historically bad. They, they were awful. They were allowing 30 points a game, every game for like the first six weeks of the season. And then they played Aaron Rodgers and the green Bay Packers and shut them down. And it just seems like something turned around a little bit in that team. Um, And now can they carry whatever momentum they had at the end of last season into this season? Because if they can't, if they go out there and allow 50 points in week one to the chiefs, then that just completely throws off all the expectations for this lions team. Uh, So what breaking down the roster and how that compares to, some of the other NFC North opponents. Like when we talk about it from that aspect, what are your thoughts?
0: Better on defense, but slightly worse on offense. And the offense reason is because it's really hard to expect Jared Goff to have another Pro Bowl season, right? Jared Goff was 29 touchdowns, seven interceptions, 4,500 yards, a passer rating of a hundred, which put him as one of 10 best quarterbacks in the NFL last year. I feel like it's hard to expect that coming back for Jared Goff, especially for the fact that like five players on the team are suspended for gambling to start the season, <laughs> uh, including his number two receiver, Jameson yeah. Williams.
1: I didn't even mention the wide receivers, I too. Pleasant. I should say, like Amon yeah. Ross St. Brown, he's a badass. Marvin Jones, he's a, the old guy in the room, but coming back to Detroit from the uh Jaguars, he's great too. But if they do get Jamison Williams and he's everything that it is advertised. That, that's a great wide receiving room to have.
0: Yeah. And I don't think they'll be able to replicate the offensive production as last. I don't understand the Jameer Gibbs thing either, um, but maybe I just, I didn't see it in college the same way other people did with Jameer Gibbs when they were talking about him being the first or second running back off the board after B. John Robinson. I'm like, I get it from the the physical gifts. And sometimes that's the thing that really matters, but I liked Charbonnet with uh, who went to Seattle. I I liked him as a running back prospect more than Gibbs. I I just I'm interested by their decision to go Gibbs and also to go Jack Campbell with their second first round pick because Jack Campbell, uh, our friend Blake Jude had him as a third round grade and they really reached on him in the first round as a linebacker. Obviously they tried to bring in cornerback help because their cornerback room was decimated last year. They obviously traded away Jeff Okuda replaced him with Chauncey Gardner Johnson. Chauncey Gardner Johnson is now hurt. So he's not going to be around to start the season. Uh, Quint has Cephas on the defense. He's suspended for gambling. So I'm just interested to see what that ends up becoming for the Lions. I guess your, your question was about, are, are the Lions going to take a leap? And, and like I said, off the beginning, I don't know the answer, but I'm not as gung-ho believing in the Lions as other people are. I, I still think the Vikings are going to win that division this year. Um, They're going to probably be either the three or the four seed in the NFC playoffs. And depending on who they play in the wild card, we'll probably get smoked a little bit uh, like they did last year by the New York Giants. But yeah, I mean... The division's up for the taking. That's the thing I'll say for sure. Because again, I think all of these teams are in that like 12 to 18 range of the best teams in the NFL. And none of those teams jumps out to me as like they are going to blow the league away and compete with the 49ers and compete with the Eagles and compete with the Cowboys in the NFC. Now,
1: one thing though, I will accredit to this team is I, I feel like they did change the culture there, which was a big thing that Dan Campbell was tasked with whenever he took over the reins in Detroit. And I mean, you just hear the way the players talk about him. Hell Charles Barkley even had a comment this week that he would run through a brick wall for this guy, like that he wanted a guy like Dan Campbell as his head coach. And I think that's powerful. I think that that resonates and you can tell, like, I mean, I feel it. I mean, Dan Campbell there's sometimes that are, <laughs> I'm like, damn, I kind of wish he was our head coach in San Francisco over Kyle Shanahan. If for nothing else, not from a play calling standpoint, just because like he's the type of guy that you want to root for in a way. Um, and so I'm looking at their early season schedule. I think a large part of the hype for Detroit is just going to be kind of how they get started. So they're playing the defending Super Bowl champions. This is unique for Detroit because they weren't getting scheduled in a lot of primetime games over the last few years. If they lose week one to the Chiefs, no one's going to bash them over the head for it. I I, I think that that's depending if they get embarrassed or not, I should say. Like if they go out there and they legitimately it's a 45 to 7 skunking, then people will start talking about, oh, maybe we jumped the gun on the Lions. But if they go out there and look semi-competitive, maybe keep it within like 10 points, couple touchdowns or something like that i think the the hype is not going to die down on this detroit lions okay fast forward to week two they have the seahawks uh seahawks playoff team from a year ago they faced the falcons the following week packers and panthers so they have in this stretch of the schedule i could see a four and one stretch out of the the this first five opponents I mean, three and two would be, I, I think, a huge win for them, but I could see a four and one stretch potentially because, again, if you lose to the Chiefs, no shame in that. It happens. Seahawks, Geno Smith, will he be Geno Smith from last year or will he be Geno Smith from the Jets, Chargers, Geno Smith from the first half of his NFL career? The Falcons, can they shut down the running game? I guess it be John Robinson. We know what the Falcons are going to bring to that game. Uh, The Packers, again, with the Jordan Love like mystery, how good will he be? How good will a floor be? Don't know that. Panthers, I think that they'll be bad with a rookie quarterback. So, again, four winnable games in your first five games. You start four and one, and suddenly winning the NFC North, is not not only not out of reach it, it's certainly kind of starts feeling like a more uh, a surety
0: how would you feel if they went two and three in that stretch of games
1: if they went two and three in that stretch of games and obviously two depending on who they lose to like if they lose to the packers that's bad that doesn't make me feel too good about them if they let's say the three losses came against the chiefs seahawks Gosh, if they start 0-3 and they lost to the Falcons, then I would really feel down on them. Like, uh, Because, it, come on, how many teams 0-3 have went on to do great things, win a playoff game, win a division? It just doesn't happen. You can't start 0-3. So, uh, in the first three games, I think that the expectation should be go 2-1. and one.
0: I wouldn't say that because I'm going to put this out there. There's no scenario they're going to beat Kansas City in the first game of the season. Just going to put it out there. When they're getting their Super Bowl rings... At their home stadium, first get there's no there's no scenario they're gonna beat Kansas City. Kansas City, Kansas City scores thirty five points with their eyes closed, and this is the Detroit defense we're talking about here. I know they're a little bit more improved; but they've added a couple pieces. This is Detroit's defense against Kansas City's offense. They're not gonna win that football game. The other side of the coin is they can start zero and three, and context will make me feel a little bit better about them, but. The four games that you mentioned there, which are Seahawks, Falcons, Packers, and Panthers, other than maybe the Panthers game, I feel like all of those are coin toss games. And so if you're flipping the coin three times, maybe it comes up heads three times and they start three and one. Maybe it comes up tails three times and it starts 0 and 4. Sometimes that's just the shitty thing about how small these margins are. I
1: I think, though, part of the reason why I say they can't start 0 and 3 is because it's also a mental... Thing for them, if they go into the season, they start zero and three. Then all that positive vibes, all that good energy that we're talking about that they have going into this season, that starts to dissipate, and it's it's hard to regain that. Now we know last season what they start zero and 0 and six. They start. I I know that. Yeah, they didn't win in the first month, and that's kind of why they didn't make the playoffs. Like, how if they just had one win in that first month? Think about that. If they had one win in that first month. They're in the playoffs. How different do we look at them if they're a team coming off at least a playoff run? I mean, look at the Philadelphia Eagles last year, right? Like the Philadelphia Eagles. Yeah, they went to the playoffs the year before, got crushed by the Buccaneers, but then they were able to use that positive energy and bring it into their Super Bowl run last year. The Lions, I'm not saying that they're talking Super Bowl out there in Motown, but, you know, just having the confidence coming off like a good quality stretch of games, winning some games early in the season, that that could make all the difference in the world to whether or not your team is actually good and competing throughout the season. So I think two and one, it feels like almost a necessity. Like if they go into that Packers game, they're one and two. I just don't feel as good about them, you know?
0: Like I said at the beginning, I don't know if the Lions will make the leap this year. I genuinely don't know. I would say the measure of success for the Lions is... If they do win that division, doesn't matter if they win it with nine wins, 10 wins, eight wins, doesn't matter. If they get to play a playoff game on their home field for the first time in 32 years, that's going to be a successful season. <laughs> the Bengals a couple of years ago with Joe Burrow got to host that playoff game against the uh, Raiders with the, the Baspachia Raiders and the, and the whistle that took away a touchdown or whatever you want to call it like when the Bengals got to host that playoff game and they won their first home playoff game in 30 years that season was a success at that point after that they went on to beat the Titans and then go to Kansas City and beat Kansas City but that season was a success as soon as they won that playoff game against the Raiders that's when you knew you had a quarterback you knew you had a wide receiver in Jamar Chase that added value like a quarterback and you had a team that had turned a corner if Detroit can get to the playoffs and play don't even have to win play a playoff game on their home field this will be a successful season for the detroit lions that should be the marker of success doesn't matter how many games you win if you can get to the playoffs, that will be a massive that will be very that will be proof that this man Campbell thing has work and that they will continue to extend him to give him a contract extension, potentially bring back Jared Goff on a contract extension and continue to build the way that Brad Holmes and him have been building the last couple of years.
1: Well, isn't also part of the equation and part of the expectations are. Again, we mentioned the weekend NFC North, but also the weak NFC. Like you, you mentioned, they don't necessarily have to win a playoff game, but if they are a division champion, you know, facing one of these wild card teams in the NFC, um, you know, a lot of the teams that are going to make the wild card in the NFC aren't going to be like powerhouses exactly. They don't, I, I don't think it would be a good look for them to end up looking like the Minnesota Vikings last year, right? To go in, win your division and getting killed by the New York Giants. I don't think that would be a good look. I mean, it would feel good for them again to make the playoffs. But if you're, again, building positive energy and you are the home team, losing to a wildcard team is something that I, I don't think that they should be proud of necessarily.
0: I don't know. Cause think about the, uh, think about the Chicago Bears from a few years ago. Remember when they, uh, they were the, they were doing the club dub thing and they intercepted Aaron Rodgers and won the NFC North and they were all excited about that thing. And then they got to the playoffs, hosted a home playoff game and then the double doink game happened. Yeah. The double doink game was pretty demoralizing. But I think the thing that was more demoralizing for their chances going forward was Mitchell Trubisky not being the quarterback they had anticipated Mitchell Trubisky would be. That could be a greater problem than getting blown out in a playoff game by a team like the Cowboys. What, or what, something. what
1: I would stop you there in saying is just, you know, years of evidence at this point proves that Jared Goff, yeah, he's a flawed player. Everyone's a flawed player in the NFL, but I do think that Jared Goff has proven that He is a capable starter in this league. He's a starter that can win playoff games in this league when he has the right team around him. Is this Lions team the right team around uh, Jared Goff? I mean, again, one of the best offensive lines in football, right? Talented wide receivers. And if Gibbs is good, you know, this running game is good like last year. Again, that seems like the right offense that I would want a guy like Jared Goff to succeed in. He stayed healthy throughout his NFL career. Will that remain into this season too? I think that that's one of his bigger strengths as a player. Again, I I think one of the bigger issues in his career was turnovers early. Last year, he did a great job limiting it. You said you don't think that he can necessarily repeat last season. Well, he can if he just, again, limits the turnover ball. Yeah, I I think that Jared Goff can do that because I don't think that the opportunity to have to play this team into uh, wins is necessarily going to be there. I think that if he game manages all year, I think the Lions are okay with that.
0: In one year, Jared Goff went from being the bridge quarterback in the rebuild to the quarterback they're actually thinking about keeping around long term. And that is a massive success from Jared Goff's standpoint. Now, you talked about Goff as one of those quarterbacks that. He's a product of the talent that you build around him. He's not necessarily going to elevate the players around him, but he's also not going to drive the whole thing into a ditch. If you're talking about the talent that they've surrounded with Jared Goff with this year, and if that with Jared Goff at quarterback will be good enough to be winning a playoff game in the NFC, let's say. So let's say they're one of the four best teams in the NFC. I would say, is that the case with the talent around him this year? My answer is, I don't think so but I also am not a hundred percent sure because I can't name a team other than the 49ers, the Eagles, and I think the Seattle Seahawks who I can say definitively are better than the Detroit lions, the Cowboys, maybe the Cowboys is a maybe yes, the Cowboys are definitely a maybe in that group. And that's the, that's the thing where I'm like, there's like seven teams that could be that team other than Detroit. That's why I say I don't think so, just because the odds are not stacked in Detroit's favor. And at the same time, I'm not going to rule it out entirely because for the second half of last season, Detroit was the fourth best team in the NFC. I mean, all the numbers bared it out that after the 49ers, Eagles, and Cowboys from from November onward, Detroit was the fourth best team in the NFC. So I'm not going to rule out the fact that it's a possibility. It's just, I would say, unlikely.
1: Detroit Lions, a lot of hype going into this year. The GM is confident. The coach is confident. Fans seem to be confident. I mean, hell, they sold out four field and season tickets for the first time in the history of that stadium. What do you think of the, about this team? Do you think that they'll be able to win the NFC North, win the NFC? Who knows? Go on to bigger and grander things. like to hear your thoughts in the comments section. Leave a like on the video. Subscribe to the channel. Follow us on all our social medias from Juju and Kyle. Stay safe, happy, and healthy.
0: So we're now one month away from the start of NBA training camp. And while Damian Lillard still hasn't been traded and James Harden is actively beefing with the Philadelphia 76ers, we do have uh, the reemergence of Ben Simmons coming up prior to the 2023 season. Ben Simmons was talking with Mark Spears of Anscaped, and Simmons talked about how if the version he's at now played against the version of himself from last year, He would kill that version of himself. Ben Simmons thinks that he is back to a top-of-the-NBA-level player. And we'll see what happens with Simmons. Obviously, he's still got two years left on his contract with Brooklyn. Back injuries kept him out of the 2022 season. And then last year, he was limited in play a lot of times, averaged less than 10 points a game. So, Juju, with all the questions about Ben Simmons' mental health and his physical health and everything that happened with his exit in Philadelphia, what do you think about the... Ben Simmons rebound for this season.
1: (laughs) Well, you know, the interesting thing is you mentioned the back injury and I I remember the reporting along that was the back injury was largely mental or his mental health had a large role in that back injury. To what effect was it limiting? Because, you know, dealing with back soreness, it's one of the trickier injuries in sports, especially like if you're an NBA player who spends a lot of his time in the post like a Ben Simmons, I, I can understand how that could be limiting. It was interesting to watch last year with the Brooklyn Nets, uh, with Jacques Vaughn, just at, at points, he couldn't even play the guy. He, he just didn't have a specific role on the Nets offense, even when the Nets were even starting to get, I wouldn't say good, but they were starting to get frisky after they had to move off of Harden, uh, Kyrie, KD. They made all the trades that they made um, and put that team together that they had towards the end of last season. They were a, a feisty team. But it was largely with Ben Simmons not playing for them, you know? And when I think about some of the monster stat lines that he used to be able to put up, he used to be a nightmare for teams. And we haven't seen that version in a very long time. And I I question whether or not that guy is still in there. I I just don't know if that like window has officially closed on him.
0: I don't know what we're going to see from Ben Simmons going forward. I'm very curious about his career in general because Ben Simmons is one of those players who has been accused of not liking basketball as if it's this like great sin of the sport that you don't like basketball, despite the fact that Ben Simmons is, again, the the son of a former basketball player and basketball coach. Number one pick in the NBA draft who from the age of 15, people identified this person is going to be a basketball star and being pushed in that direction from a young age and then reaching the NBA and realizing that maybe playing basketball isn't the thing that he wants to do with his life, but it's the thing that he's been directed towards his entire life. And then uh, everything that happened in Philadelphia ended up being a a giant mental minefield to work through beyond the, the shooting problems. Uh, beyond not wanting to be made fun of for his shooting problems, which is a thing that's pretty publicly clear at this point, is that Ben Simmons stopped shooting because he was tired of people making fun of him for not shooting. And then uh, they lose the playoff series to Atlanta, and he decides he's never going back to Philadelphia at that point. And Philadelphia makes public enemy number one. Like, we all know the story up to this point with Ben Simmons, and I've always been so fascinated by it. Uh, I just don't know where it goes next for Ben Simmons here, because... All the expectations are gone, right? It's been two full seasons since he was supposed to be the second best player on the number one seed in the East. It's been two seasons since the I'm not coming back to Philadelphia and Daryl Morey trading him for James Harden. Like all of that is is a distant memory at this point. Maybe people are still holding on to it from a fan standpoint, but from a player standpoint, from a a league executive and league media standpoint, I don't think that's the reputation Ben Simmons has anymore. I think that's all forgotten at this point by one, a full season of not playing and two, a season of being relatively obscure and out of the out of the limelight essentially I mean like you said Ben Simmons was coming off the bench a lot of the year last year for Brooklyn after they traded Kevin Durant after everything that happened with Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving people weren't talking about (laughs) Ben Simmons on the Brooklyn Nets and then when Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant got traded. Nobody was talking about the Brooklyn Nets for any reason because nobody cared about the Mike Halbridges, Cam Johnson, Ben Simmons, Brooklyn Nets, the back end of the season. So I think the reputation of old for Ben Simmons is a distant memory now. And I think that opens up a blank slate for Ben Simmons to build the second half of his career that he wants to build was it disappointing though that he didn't capitalize on the
1: fact that he was shielded in many ways when he was on that brooklyn nets team with KD and Kyrie? the focus wasn't really on simmons like a lot of people whenever that trade happened for harden people thought that the nets might actually be better for it because some of the strengths of simmons were his defensive capabilities back in the day. But maybe the back injury, if, you know, to what extent that was, was limiting for him on the defensive end of the basketball hurt him. But, you know, in many ways, I think people thought that it would have been a good opportunity just because the focus wasn't on him. We know just how much of the vitriol, like Kyrie and KD absorb in themselves. And with Simmons also there, obviously, they were one of the more hated teams in the league. But the focus wasn't on him, like it was in Philly or... In that weird offseason in of Philly where he was not playing too. Like, people weren't really talking about Simmons as much as they were talking about KD and Kyrie.
0: Remember when two years ago it was uh the end of Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, they lost to the Celtics in the first round when they were the seventh seed. And the conversation all these years is they score more points than anyone in the history of the league, and they can't play defense, right? That was the thing everyone said about Brooklyn: is like they are awful at defense but they score a ton of points. When they traded for Ben Simmons, they were like, this fits exactly what they need. They need a defensive-minded player who can play defense on the perimeter and give them more balance. Um, The thing is now Brooklyn's roster construction is we play incredible top-of-the-league defense and can't score for shit. (laughs) That's what happened. They turned over their roster completely and now it's Nick Claxton, Michael Bridges, Cam Johnson, three of the best defensive players in the NBA who can't score at the levels of the competition that they play. Michael Bridges can give you points. He can't give you points the same way that Luka Doncic can give you points. He can't give you points the same way that Jason Tatum can give you points. So what does Michael Bridges bring to the table? Really, really good defense. Cam Johnson, really, really good defense. And he works best as a spot-up shooter. Because I remember in that playoff series, they were playing the Sixers. Cam Johnson was averaging 24 points a game. He had a 30-point playoff game last year. People forget Cam Johnson had a 30-point playoff game last year. And they got swept by Philadelphia. Because the best path forward is not Cam Johnson scoring 25 points a game. He's not efficient enough as a scorer to put that forward. So ironically, Brooklyn is now a team that has four players who play really good defense but also aren't top-of-the-league scorers. I don't really think they have a top-of-the-league scorer on their team between yeah. Claxton, Bridges, Cam Johnson, and Ben Simmons, who are I would argue are their core four players right now. You could argue Dinwiddie is also in that group, but I would say Claxton, Bridges, Johnson, and Ben Simmons are their core four players. None of those guys are really great offensive threats, so... They kind of just have a a multiplicity of the same skill set now, which wasn't the case two years ago.
1: So if you're Jock Vaughn, do you trust this guy to throw him out there in key spots to be an everyday starter for you, part of your core group of guys? Like, how do you treat Ben Simmons this year if you're assuming he's part of the team the entire season?
0: I don't think you make Ben Simmons the primary ball handler on the team. Which is something that Ben Simmons has been in pretty much every place that he's been so far. So they have two point forwards, right? So they have Michael Bridges and they have Ben Simmons, both guys who handle the ball coming up the floor at times, both of them who work well as distributors and aren't necessarily the first option you would turn to to create your own shot, right? So they have two point forwards on the team. And I would suspect their best path forward is with Michael Bridges because I would assume. Michael Bridges is a better basketball player as of now than Ben Simmons, but that's kind of crazy to say compared to two years ago, right? Michael Bridges was the fourth best player on a team that came within two games of winning the championship in the Phoenix Suns. And Ben Simmons was an all NBA defensive player who had made multiple all star games and was worth a max contract, right? At this stage, I think it's safe. I mean, I'm not saying 100% sure, but I feel like Michael Bridges is a better basketball player than. Ben Simmons, I don't think either of them are all stars at this stage of their career. So I think it's kind of semantics here. Brooklyn's just doing, working with what they have. And personally, I think Brooklyn's had that like, play in like 9, 10, 11 territory in the Eastern Conference. Yeah, this year. That, that was about to be
1: my next question. Like, where do you see Brooklyn right now with this team composition?
0: I can name you seven teams that I know for sure are better than Brooklyn. Because even people were like, oh, Brooklyn made the playoffs at the end of last season after trading KD and, and Kyrie. They had a sub 500 record after trading Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving, uh, and then got swept out of the playoffs by the Philadelphia 76ers. This was not a team that was lighting up the league after the trade. They were just not tanking. That was the thing that was clear when they traded for Kevin Durant. They are not tanking. They're going to retool this thing on the fly, basically. I can say that Boston, Miami, Milwaukee, Philadelphia, Cleveland, the Knicks, and Atlanta are all better than Brooklyn. So that leaves Brooklyn kind of in that like eight to 12 territory. Cause I, yeah. I mean, Orlando is an interesting case, but l- besides Orlando, I would say Charlotte is not going to be as good as the, um, the Toronto Raptors. Is it fair to say might be in that group as well as like I mean, 8 to the, 12 at this point? The bulls. I mean, they
1: still got Demar there for what it's worth. Yeah. They, I mean, Zach Levine, they it's we're talking the play in territory, right? Like, I feel like the Bulls have more firepower, certainly offensively. Now, we know they can't stop anyone defensively, but that's kind of the opposite effect. That, again, you have with Brooklyn where they're defensive minded, but no offense.
0: Yeah, I even like Indiana about as much as I like Brooklyn at this point with, with Tyrese Halliburton and Benedict Matherin as the one two there. Now, so Now,
1: if I told you, though, if I told you that Ben Simmons could return to form, could be Philadelphia Ben Simmons. Does that at all change how you look at this Brooklyn Nets team?
0: Brooklyn is, we mentioned the core four players on the team before. It's it's Nick Claxton, it's Mike Al Bridges, it's Cam Johnson, and it's Ben Simmons. Again, no, no disrespect to Dinwiddie. I know Dinwiddie's still there. I'm just putting him on the other side of this list here. So of those four players, I would assume Brooklyn's going to trade one of them at some point here. I don't know which one it's going to be because Cam Johnson has one year left on his deal. Uh, or maybe Cam Johnson, I think Cam Johnson signed an extension this offseason. So I think he's got four years, 100 million now with Brooklyn added on to the last year of his deal. Bridges is under contract. Uh, Claxton's under contract. Simmons has two years left on his deal. So if I were to pick one of them that would be most likely as a trade candidate, I would assume it would be Simmons. But if you tell me Ben Simmons can play all NBA defense again and give you six assists a game and is back in the starting lineup then maybe we have a second thought about this. But I think they're in a tough position because all of these players, one, are not good enough to be the best player on a team that's actually competitive in the NBA, and two, have very repetitive skill sets if they're going to be your two, three, and four best players on the team. So I guess Ben Simmons is the one I would point to and say is most likely to be traded, but no one's trading for that contract as of right now. So as uh, of now.
1: yeah, that's the next question there is like, What is kind of the trade value of Ben Simmons? Like who's trading for him? What are you trading? I know you have to match that contract too, which is a whole other Pandora's box of issues when it comes to moving off a guy like Simmons. Is he a guy that can still carry, at least, I don't know, a first round pick? Is he just a pick swap? Is he just a couple of role players and you call it a day?
0: think it depends on when you trade him because like the last time ben simmons was traded which was the trade deadline two years ago he had three and a half years left on that contract and even last year when brooklyn was tearing that shit to the ground he still had three years and a hundred and i want to say 110 million left on that contract so no one was really chomping at a bit to trade for ben simmons but i think if it's the trade deadline this year he's got one and a half years 50 million dollars if it really doesn't work out, you can buy him out at the end of one year. Teams are really only trading for one year of Ben Simmons at this point. One year and two playoff runs are essentially what they're looking at. It's one year and two playoff runs for Ben Simmons. So I would say it's more likely that he's tradable this year. And if Ben Simmons looks like a halfway decent NBA player there's a team that will trade for him at that contract. I just think what you're going to see is probably a player swap more than it is a draft pick swap. So it would be like Brooklyn trading for a player that better complements what they're doing in their system. I'll use the Sacramento Kings as an example because I want the Sacramento Kings to trade for Ben Simmons. I would like that to be a thing that happens. If the Sacramento (laughs) Kings offered up Kevin Herter and harrison barnes for ben simmons and pick a player on brooklyn's bench who's like relatively young uh maybe even dinwiddie i i know he's got a larger contract but just throw in another player who's on brooklyn if you make that as the straight up swap i think that's more probable than any draft picks changing hands because i think instead of trading ben simmons as an asset you're trading ben simmons for a player that better fits the team that brooklyn's trying to build because like we said claxton bridges johnson simmons They're very similar in terms of where they stand in the NBA right now, and uh, all of them play pretty good defense, but shouldn't be your number one or even number two scoring option. Maybe Bridges could be a number two scoring option, but it's not ideal if they're all your number one scoring option.
1: All right, guys. Well, what do you think? Does Ben Simmons have anything left in the tank? Can he elevate the Brooklyn Nets this season where do the Brooklyn Nets fall in the Eastern Conference but hear your thoughts in the comment section leave a like on the video subscribe to our channel follow us on all our social medias from Juju and Kyle stay safe happy and healthy we'll see you next time. raley's and knob hill we pick our produce at the peak of ripeness to provide the best for you and your family we're so sure you'll love our fresh produce that if you're not satisfied we'll replace it and provide a full refund always fresh always affordable only at raley's and knob hill all right kyle so it was just a couple weeks ago that we talked about conference realignment and college football the acc has expanded yet again we're going to see Cal, Stanford, and SMU join the conference. So again, the weirdness of having two teams on the Pacific Coast playing in the Atlantic Coast Conference. Uh, We have to revisit that conversation. Now, I know you know the TV deals and the money and all that stuff a little bit better than I do. So care to explain?
0: Oh, I want to say it was back in the week after the Pac-12 Jettisoned all their teams out. So like that 24 hours where Oregon and Washington jumped to the Big Ten, and then Arizona and Arizona State and Utah jumped over to the Big Twelve, and then it left only four teams left in the Pac-12. alan Stanford looked around and they were like, "Oh shit, we're screwed." And so they they looked around like the Big Twelve doesn't want us, the Big Ten doesn't want us. Who wants us? And the only option left on the table was the ACC. The ACC is. Currently, if uh, you haven't been following, the ACC has a television contract through 2036 with their member schools member schools got screwed on that deal because they uh, signed too long a deal to money up front and then they can't jump conferences because it costs like 400 million dollars to break that contract with the ACC so while all of the lawyers are trying to figure out how they can break their ACC contract so that Miami can go to the Big Ten and Florida State can maybe go to the SEC while all of that is going on you have Cal and Stanford saying we need a conference period because after this season we have zero dollars of income coming in at this point we have nothing on our television deal we need something from a conference so they went to the acc they proposed a slightly less of a payout compared to uh other teams in the conference and uh they got voted down it was seven yes eight no from the ACC. And so Cal and Stanford went back to the drawing board. And what they ended up agreeing to essentially was we'll take 30% of what the normal payouts are for the ACC television contract. So if that number is, I, I want to say 35 million, I'm not 100% sure what the, the payout per year is to school and Stanford did about 10 and a half million of that money. And the other 25 million for each of them, which adds up to 50 million gets distributed to schools at the top of the income like the teams that bring in the most money to the conference so florida state miami north carolina schools that bring in more money to the conference but get equal payouts to like wake forest or some shit. those schools get the extra money that cal and stanford are essentially forfeiting as part of their terms of getting into the conference so they negotiated that deal got a couple schools to flip and then they agreed to add them to the ACC. So Cal and Stanford are going to get not a whole lot of money from the deal, but they also get to be in a power conference, even if that is the Atlantic Coast Conference. And then for SMU's sake, SMU just wanted to be in a power conference. SMU ain't getting paid anything from the ACC. They just wanted to be in a power conference really, really badly. And so they're going to give up all of their income from the ACC for the first seven years. It's a really bad financial deal for SMU, but SMU said we don't want to be in the AAC anymore, which might not get anything on a television contract coming up on their next deal now that all of their biggest and best schools have uh, left for either the Big 12 or another conference. Now,
1: you broke it down from the money standpoint, but from a competitive standpoint, obviously, Cal, they've been down for the last decade. Uh, Stanford has taken a huge step back. SMU, they've been a good mid-major squad, a group of five school. I don't think that they're gonna necessarily come in and challenge anyone in this conference we know the top is very much driven by Clemson when it comes to football what do you think of the ACC's long-term viability do you think that their additions will at all change the competitive balance in the conference
0: are we talking about football specific here because football specific I don't think it's going to make a huge difference because Cal football is just awful let me just put that out there Cal football awful not adding very much value. I think $10.5 million per year is too much money for Cal football because Cal football is really, really bad. Stanford has is a different conversation because Stanford has proven that they can be really good at football. They've won three Rose Bowls in the last decade. I know that's kind of weird to think about, but Stanford has won three Rose Bowls in the last 10 years. Christian McCaffrey obviously was the star at Stanford and David Shaw and Jim Harbaugh built up a program that was consistently a top 10 team like the way that we think of utah now that was stanford for much of the 2010s and utah holds some level of value i mean the big 12 wanted utah almost immediately as soon as that possibility was presented so stanford i think is a different conversation also the fact that stanford is the most decorated athletic department in all of sports if you want to expand out beyond football and basketball Uh, which are obviously big money sports. Stanford has more national championships in every sport than any other school in the country. So I think Stanford's a little bit of a different conversation. Obviously, they're not very good at the money-making sports right now, although here comes Trent Taylor, the former head coach at Sac State, to uh, try and revive the Stanford program this year. So Stanford, I think, will add some value to the conference, absolutely. It may not be what the ACC was asking for originally from Stanford, Stanford, but just adding schools to the conference is good for the ACC because uh, the ACC just needs names at this point especially as Florida State is like holding up a knife to them and trying to rob them at gunpoint to get out of their television contract because Florida (laughs) State is really unhappy in the ACC right now
1: okay so you mentioned Florida State being unhappy what about the other schools like Clemson you know they've been kind of propping up the conference in terms of football for the last couple years the University of Miami well they haven't been widely successful on the football field they still are a big name nonetheless how long before these teams get unsatisfied again i understand the contracts lock them in for whatever they lock them in for but contracts are like hearts they're made to be broken right i feel like if there's a will there's a way and these teams if they are truly unhappy in the ACC. They will find that way.
0: Yeah, so there's five teams right now that are trying to work their way out of the ACC and figure out if they can break their TV contract and join one of the big two conferences. Right now, it's Florida State, Miami, North Carolina, NC State, and Clemson are working to try and get out of the ACC relatively unsuccessful so far although they're going through that television contract they're figuring out if they can generate some kind of leverage because ultimately that's the case right now ESPN Disney has like all the leverage in this situation because they've signed the contracts it's a long-term deal Disney's content to continue meeting the obligations of their contract which is to broadcast a certain number of ACC games on national television and to keep the ACC network viable. ESPN's content to keep honoring the contract. And so these schools are kind of trying to figure out where they can find leverage. Yeah, uh, Florida State wants to go to the SEC. Miami wants to go to the Big Ten. And those conferences are receptive to bringing those schools in. So I think it is a matter of time before they try and work their way out. But I think that might be the next round of college football realignment, which is something we talked about on the last video. Once we see how the ACC gets resolved then uh we'll we'll know what college football realignment looks like now and what it might look like in 8 to 9 years when this round of television contracts expires and everyone tries to move around and find a new conference or potentially just negotiates into one giant 64 team league but I don't know how this is going to get resolved for Florida State and Clemson and Miami and the North Carolina schools.
1: Uh we know that during COVID uh, Notre Dame worked out something to play in the ACC and make that work to fill out their schedule. Uh do you think there's a godfather offer on the table to make Notre Dame because as fun as adding Cal, Stanford and SMU is I think probably the big player that would really kind of change how people look at the ACC would be adding Notre Dame, honestly.
0: I don't think it's any different than it was in the past because the thing that's distinct about Notre Dame is Notre Dame wants to be independent. That is their thing. They want to be independent in football. They negotiate their own television contract with NBC and Peacock to broadcast their games. Now, I think the thing that's different now is that, well, beginning this year, I suppose, because the new television contracts kick in for the Big Ten this year, beginning this year, Notre Dame's no longer the exclusive nbc partner for college football you're gonna see big 10 games on nbc beginning this year the the primetime saturday night slot is gonna have big 10 games on nbc so that's something that's gonna change the the equation a little bit for notre dame but i think notre dame is gonna stick with the situation they're in right now which is we're gonna be acc for every sport except for football and we're kind of OK with not getting the football payouts from the conference. I don't think Notre Dame's going to be joining the ACC in football anytime soon.
1: Playing a hypothetical here, though, if you're the ACC, how do you make a pitch to them above the Big Ten that has a lot of their rivals?
0: For the Big Ten, because obviously Notre Dame is right in the middle of Big Ten country. It makes all the sense in the world for Notre Dame to join the Big Ten. But I think you would need Florida State and Miami And those schools that would rather leave the ACC and join a power conference to be more cooperative in order to lure Notre Dame over to the conference, potentially sacrificing dollars because the TV contract isn't going to go up by adding Notre Dame. So everyone's going to get a slightly smaller piece of the pie if Notre Dame's going to get college football payouts from the ACC. I think you would need those schools to kind of collaborate there. But I think the ACC's kind of moved past that at this point. And I think the reason you can kind of infer that is look at the ACC just adding Cal. Stanford and SMU to try and appease Florida State and appease Miami and appease Clemson by giving them uh, an extra $50 million to split between the group uh, by. Cal and Stanford agreeing to only take 30% payouts and SMU agreeing to take no payouts for the first seven years of their ACC contract. So I, I think the, the directive of the ACC is to try and bring Florida State and Clemson down from the edge a little bit more than it is to try and lower Notre Dame at this point. Because I think if they had wanted to, 2020 was the year to do it when Notre Dame was desperate to fill out a football schedule, when Notre Dame needed to be a part of the ACC temporarily, I think that was the year for the ACC to do it because they had the most leverage in that situation. At this point, I think they would need some help from those big schools in the conference, I put big in air quotes, because Louisville is also technically a big school, but they're content to take their ACC payouts and ignore the fact that they're the worst college basketball team in the conference. So I don't think there's a good chance Notre Dame is gonna get there. But I think the path forward would be getting Florida State, Miami, and NC State and North Carolina and Clemson to kind of accept taking slightly less on their payouts in order to bring in a Notre Dame.
1: All right, guys, the ACC is making moves, adding Cal stanford and smu do any of these teams change the landscape for you of the acc do they elevate the conference at all like to hear your thoughts in the comment section uh leave a like on the video subscribe to the channel follow us on all our social medias from juju and kyle stay safe happy and healthy we'll see you next time